Wow. We've been here for about eight months now, and I'm still surprised often by the talent we have here, especially in the, the musical department. Thank you so much, Pam, for, for leading us in, in worship this morning and to the choir. That was, that was amazing. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, it is an, an honor and a privilege anytime there's a chance given to, to preach your word, to proclaim the, the truth that you've given us in Scripture. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would make these words that I'm about to say effective. God, I'm, I'm a man and you know all too well my faults, the places I fall short. But God, today I just pray that you would use your word, have your way with me, to speak through me in whatever ways that you might see fit to bring about change in the lives of those who need it today, God. I pray that we would just hear the truth of this message, take it to our hearts, uh, and live it as you have called us to. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I was in ninth grade, when I was a freshman in high school, I played on a football team. Not the best football team, but a pretty good football team. And we didn't have a great record or anything, but we were unbeaten at home. On our home turf, we hadn't lost a game yet. And we would kept it that way until the last home game of the season. So we were fired up. We wanted to win this game really bad. We wanted to go out with a bang. It was our, it was our end of our freshman year, which when I went to school there, it was a junior high. So when you were a freshman, you were actually like the top dog. And then you were going to go to sophomore and be kind of back at the totem pole. So we wanted to leave junior high as the top dogs who, who had a good year in the football. Uh, football. And we, we played a really good game. We made it into the fourth quarter. It was kind of low scoring. And we made it to the point where we were up by a field goal. And there was just a little bit of time left on the clock. We were trying to get a stop on defense. Couldn't get a stop, couldn't get a stop, couldn't get a stop. Finally, on third down, we were able to get a stop, but they were in field goal range. So they come out, fourth down, kick the field goal, tied up with about a minute or so, a minute or so left on the clock. So we're thinking, okay, we can get this kick back. Maybe we can get a few plays in. Maybe we can run it back. We've got, we've got a little bit of time left. We're tied up. We'll take it into overtime, if nothing else. So the, the kick comes. We thought they might just kick it out of bounds. Maybe they'll just kick it out of bounds. We've got a stud back there. They probably won't even give him a chance to run it back. So they don't kick it out of bounds. They, they kick it to, to our running back, who's just the fastest thing you've ever seen. He gets the ball, hits the sidelines, and he's gone all the way to the end zone. And I'm kind of behind him, a ways behind him, but I can see him, see him going in, and I'm just, yeah, you know, we, we got it. We're going to get the win. So we're kind of celebrating in the end zone, and then, we turn around, and there's flags on the field. On the other side, opposite of the side of the ball, just an unnecessarily block, blocks him in the back. Kick gets called back. We end up losing the game in overtime. So we, but we were this close, this close. We thought we had it. We thought we had the game won. We thought we were in there. We thought the touchdown was good, but it got called back. But today in Scripture, we're going to see a similar situation played out in a dialogue that takes place between Jesus and this certain scribe that is going on about his, his authority, who he is, and the authority of his, of his message. It's relevant to us today in a lot of reasons, one being the, the authority of Christ is challenged today maybe, maybe more than ever. 
Uh, it was challenged back then and it's challenged today. And when we're placed in these positions to, to where we want to defend that authority and we feel that we need to and we should, sometimes we can defend it even to a fault. Like we're, we're combative about it. The gospel's on the line. If I don't win this argument, nobody's getting saved again. I have got to stand up for Jesus. And sometimes we get aggressive about that or we get angry about that. And we can handle that in the wrong way. But we see in Jesus, the way he handles this challenge and begins to defend his own authority, it's not the way that, that we do it. He begins to, to take this challenge and point this person towards the gospel. Which is, which is what we should do. It doesn't do us any good to, to win an argument, um, to make someone, uh, or to prove someone wrong with what um, they're believing. We want to bring them to the gospel. You know, winning an argument isn't, isn't the, the point. We want them to, to hear the gospel over and over. And we see Jesus do this, uh, do this today in the setting that we have. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to mainly look at verses 28 through, through 34. But there's a lot of, of context that, that builds up to this point. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us just a little bit to, to get there, but, but we're going there. Actually, all this really begins uh, back in chapter 11, whenever Jesus starts to make his triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem. So I'm going I'm to start there, and I'm just going to kind of walk us through a series of events of what took place before Jesus gets to this, this dialogue that he's having. And I want to do that so we can see exactly what's going on, sort of the characters that are involved here, and we can understand all the implications and everything that, that's being said. So this begins with Jesus coming back into to Jerusalem. When Jesus makes what's commonly called his triumphal entry back, where he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, he is at the height of his popularity, the height of the popularity of his Ministry, everyone is, is just cheering for him. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're waving palm leaves. Uh, they're, they're shouting out uh, prophecies of the son of David. And they just believe the kingdom of God is here. It's coming and we're going to be delivered from our oppression today. And so they're just cheering and welcoming, in, welcoming him in. But the, the Pharisees there are still in place. And they've had issues and struggles with Jesus all the way along. And even now they're calling out for him to rebuke the disciples. He says, you need to rebuke these disciples for the way they're acting. And Jesus tells them, we see in Luke, it's recorded that even if I did, the rocks would cry out and declare. So that kind of begins their, their intensity to rise towards wanting to have him arrested or wanting to destroy him, as scripture, scripture says. So as he comes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And it, he, he gets into the temple and he does kind of an inspection. He looks around and he sees what's going on, sees... The, the bad things that are going on, sees what's taking place in there that, that shouldn't be, but it's late, so he, he retires back to, to Bethany. And as he's leaving Bethany, they come across a fig tree, and he pronounces a curse on this fig tree. And he looks at it, and he says that there's, there's, there's leaves on this fig, or fig tree, there should be fruit there, all the signs are there, and he curses it and says, may you never produce fruit again. And he's pronouncing a judgment, actually, on, on the temple as he's doing this. He's looking at the temple the same way, and that's what's raising his frustration, is that the temple should be the place where people come to get, to get fed, to know the Lord, to pray, to see fruit coming out of. But instead, they're being lied to, and they're being deceived. So as the fig tree was, so was the temple. It was misleading and deception. And so he curses this, this fig tree, and they go and they stay the night in Bethany, and then and he returns back. To, to cleanse the temple. 
And so he begins to exemplify his authority once again. And he comes in and he's turning over tables and he's running people out. He's not letting people carry anything through. And he's arguing this is a house of prayer. My father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've turned it into a den of thieves. So he cleans out the temple. He gets it back in order. And the scribes and the Pharisees see this as he's gotten things back in order. And he's, he's teaching even again on a daily basis and they just they can't stand it. Their anger towards him is growing. Their jealousy is growing. So they're wanting to really put a seek and destroy mission in place against Jesus to, to stop him from, from teaching his message, for, to stop him from growing in popularity as well. So as he begins to teach, his authority is challenged. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they, they want to know what, where does this authority come from? By what authority are you, are you doing these things? And it seems as if they, they recognize his authority. They, they know he has the authority. They can tell by his teachings. They can tell by his miracles. They can tell by his behavior. You can even think back to Mark chapter 2 when he healed the, the paralytic that was brought into the place that he was teaching and the roof was removed and he was dropped in. And Jesus looks at him and says, your, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are just kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. God forgives sins. Who, who are you to forgive sins? And Jesus says, well, what's easier for me to say? Take up your bed and go home or your sins are forgiven. But so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and go home. And so they see this and it says they marvel at him. So they know he's got this authority, but they're trying to figure out where it comes from because they really want to know why they don't have it. And they think if he's got this authority, we should have it. So there's jealousy and there's pride that are working here. So as they ask him this question, what he does is he points them back to, to John the Baptist. And he says, did, did the baptism of John the Baptist, did that come from, from heaven or did that come from, from man? The Pharisees had sent out a group to John the Baptist way back earlier in the Gospel accounts to sort of get his testimony. They sent people out to ask him who are you? What, what, what are you doing? Where does this baptism come from? And he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one crying out in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. I'm not the Christ, but he is the one who is, who is coming. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not fit to untie. So John the Baptist delivers this testimony of who he is, that he is a prophet, that he is making straight the way of the Lord, which is Jesus. And he tells them that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who stands among them that they don't, that they don't know. So Jesus points them back to that testimony that they had gotten with that question where did the baptism of John the Baptist come from? And so they, they know that. And so they're just kind of checkmate. You know, what, what do we say? If we say that, that it's from heaven, then we're acknowledging his authority. We're acknowledging that he's sin of God. We're acknowledging that he is the Messiah that John the Baptist said he was. But if we say it's not from heaven, then all the people and all the crowds here that also know that was from heaven, they're going to rise up against us. So they just say, well, well, we, well we don't know. And he says, well, that's fine. Then I don't have to tell you where my authority comes from, if you don't know. And he goes on and he pronounces this parable of the tenants. We won't get too much into that, but he delivers this parable of the tenants where basically the, the heir to the owner of the vineyard goes in and the, the people that are there, they kill the heir to want to take his inheritance. And so he pronounces this parable against them. And they know it 
and the crowd knows it and says they were scared to arrest him or do anything at that point because they knew that parable had been proclaimed against them. So then they kind of they kind of fade back. This group of, of elders kind of fade back, and these Herodians come in, and they come in with a group of Pharisees. The Herodians were more of a, a political party that were of the house of Herod, and they were normally enemies with the Pharisees. Normally they didn't work together. Normally they didn't get along, but they thought they could come together here with like some common common hatred really is what it was and begin to try to take Jesus down. So they come in with this question to try to trap him to see if they could get him in trouble with Rome. If we can get him to teach something in conflict with what the Roman law says, well then we can have him taken down that way. So they bring in this question about taxes. Is it, is, it, is it lawful to pay taxes? And they puff him up and they say, Oh, teacher, we know that you are truly of God and you only teach the true way. So teach us truly, is it lawful for, for, for godly men to pay taxes? And he just says, Well, let me see your, let me see your coin. I don't know if he called it a coin. <laughs> Give me your coin. And whose, whose picture is on it? Whose face is on there? And he says, Well, it's Caesar. He says, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to the Lord the things that are the Lord. And it says again, they marveled at him. So the Herodians and the Pharisees, they, they kind of fade back. They've kind of given it their shot. And so now the Sadducees, they, they step up. Sadducees are also a little bit more of a political group. They were religious just because the culture was religious. They went along with the things in the temple. They had some authority for the workings of the temple, but it was just because that's what the culture did. So they went along with that. But they were a little more political, and they sought a little bit more of the, the political power. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come in and try to sort of divide his, his followers. So they come in and they ask this question, about the resurrection. If we can get some of his people maybe to believe what it is that, that we believe, then maybe we can see a division and some of his people will begin to not follow him and maybe they'll follow us. Similar to like you might even see in the church today a division, right? You, somebody comes in and they want to bring up like a false teaching maybe and kind of get a group riled up and you see a split or something like that. The Sadducees are sort of working under that same mode. And so they ask him about the resurrection. And they give him this long, drawn-out story about a lady that was married seven times and seven times her husband had died, and so the brother did the right thing, and he married her, but eventually she dies. So in the resurrection, who, who gets the wife? Who's, who's going to be with this lady in the resurrection? And, and, and Jesus basically says, well, you're way off. You obviously don't know the scriptures nor the power of God because the angels are spiritual beings. They're not given in marriage and God is not the, the God of the dead but the God of, of the living. So he says you are quite wrong. And so cue the exit of the Sadducees. And so, so they step back. And so we've had kind of this rapid-fire dialogue of Jesus in the temple. We've had the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And now we get to, to the big... The big question here. This is the part that we really want to, to drill down into. So now we're at the, at the point of the passage we want to look at in depth today. We're at Mark 12, 28. And I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, this passage. Or actually, just the first few verses, and we'll work through it as we go. So starting off, this, this scribe steps up. And this would have been like the, the scribe. This would have been the top dog. This would have been the guy that knew 
that knew the law better than anyone else there. He felt it on his place. Well, I can step up here, and I can see what Jesus is teaching. I can see the gospel, and I'm going to find out if there's a conflict there between the law and the gospel. If there's anything there that undermines the law that Moses has taught, if there's anything there that conflicts with what we know of, of the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, then I'll be able to take this guy down. So he, he steps up. He's got the authority to do too, and he asks him this question, which is the most important commandment? Now keep in mind that the, the commandments that he's referring to are a little more uh, in-depth, I guess you could say, than what we're, we're, when we hear commandments, we think of like the Ten Commandments or maybe some of the other just imperatives that are taught. And their teaching and like the tradition of the rabbis that they were under, there were 613 commandments that were in the Torah. So there was not only, you know, 10 or 20 places maybe for, for them to find a discrepancy, but there was 613. And in those 613 commandments, they made distinguishments between heavy and light commandments. So there were some things that they thought, okay, this is more of a weighty matter. This, this desires more, or this deserves more attention. This is sort of a lighter issue. Yeah, we want to observe that, but it's not the big deal that this other issue is and that was a common thing for them to do if the new teacher was on the scene or new rabbi they would kind of hit him with that question well what's the most most important commandment and a good teacher a good rabbi would be able to to summarize that kind of give them a nutshell version that was acceptable and if that was good okay well then this guy could could go on teaching but if not you know he wasn't he wasn't fit for the job and so he brings this question to Jesus which is the most important commandment now 20 years before Jesus' time, there was a rabbi named Hillel, and he had answered what was considered the best answer up until that time, which was like a negative version of the golden rule. Do not unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. And at that point, that was, that was the best question, and they felt that that summarized the commandments well. Uh, and Jesus has his own answer prepared, and he, he's also acknowledged this, this distinction in heavy and like commandments in Matthew 5:19, he, he says, anyone who relaxes even the least of these commandments will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's, he knows what's going on there, and he's acknowledged that. So he's got his answer prepared. So here he gives this answer. When he does that, he's defending, he's defending the gospel. And so he gives them this answer, and this is what he says. I'm going to read from 12, 29 through, through 31. It says, the most important is, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he takes it a step farther and he says, The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So he starts off with what was called the Shema. Okay, the pious Jews in that day, they would have recited Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Every day, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So, so they were very clear with that. And what he's doing there is he's presenting the rightful claim that God has on all of creation to be worshipped. He is the God of the Bible. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God that separated the seas from the ocean. He is the God that hung the stars in the sky. He is the God that tells the seas where to stop. He is the God that put the life in the blood that pumps through our bodies. So he's laying, laying rightful claim to every part of our human makeup. So he's saying not even just with all these things, but from all these things, your love of God should come from your heart, from your soul, from your mind, from your strength. So all of these things, every bit of us 
should first and foremost be to worship God. And then out of that comes the second one, love your neighbor. This is the chief means of loving God. When we, when we truly love God the way that He's telling us to, if we love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, that the best that we can, that's going to come out in the form of loving our neighbors around us. That's going to be shown in the way that we love other people and the way that we treat other people. So the, the first commandment He gives to, to love God if you, look at, if you look at our Ten Commandments, if you look at the first two tables, those first, those, that first half, those are vertical. So if you love the Lord your God the way He says, and you're going to fulfill the first half of the commandments, all those are vertical, the way that we respond to God, not to take His name in vain, not to place any gods before Him, not to have any craven images, all of that is wrapped up in that one love the Lord your God. And the other commandment of loving your neighbor that would take care of that second half, the other table of the commandments that are all vertical. But we should not covet um, all of those things that have to do with our neighbor and the way that we treat them. So in these two commandments, Jesus is, is engulfing the entirety uh, of the Ten Commandments that, that Moses was given. And But what he's saying, though, is that we can't fulfill the second commandment without being obedient to the first commandment. And when we're not being obedient to the first commandment, then we can't fulfill the second commandment, that these things all work together. We love the Lord our God, and that comes out in loving our neighbors. And if we're not loving our neighbors, then we're not loving the Lord our God. So all these things come in together. And what's, what's interesting about this is that we've got a unique vantage point that the crowd there didn't have. So Jesus is defending the gospel. He's defending his message that what I'm teaching goes exactly with what the law teaches. And this is how this plays out. But we, we can look back and not just see from a teaching standpoint, but from a life standpoint that Jesus perfectly lived out these two commandments. Everything that he is teaching, he lived out with absolute Perfection. This, this is where we can really look back and see their, his authority in a way that they couldn't quite see it. We might not could see those miracles performed in front of us like they did, but we can look back and we can see this basically played out in Scripture right in front of us, that Jesus was so obedient that he loved God so much that he came and he died for sinners. If we look at uh, Philippians 2.8, it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he loved God perfectly, heart, soul, mind, and strength, always. Every second of every day, he was loving the Lord the way that he should. He was perfect. And his perfect love for God culminated in his sacrifice for the redemption of sinners. So he's not only saying, hey, this is what y'all should do. This is a really good idea here. This is what the scripture is teaching. But he's saying, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm here. This is why I have the authority to teach this because this is what my entire life is about. This is why I have been sent here. So he gives them those commandments and they, we can understand now looking back that these weren't just, just words. This is his entire purpose. But he's wanting them to see through this entire dialogue is that he's here to live the life that they could never live and gain for them the righteousness that, that they could never gain. They're doing works and they're making sacrifices and religious gestures, but they're just so blinded by their pride and their jealousy that they refuse to see the truth right in front of them. And I, 
Friend, I ask you, could pride or jealousy be keeping you even today from seeing the truth that's in front of you, from hearing the truth of the gospel? But there's a, there's a twist that, that comes. Everyone else that he has spoken with up to this point, they're just not having it. They're fading away. They're just looking for other means to destroy him, to take him down. But then we have this, t- this twist here in verse 32. And this, this scribe, he responds and he says, You're right. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the person that could have passed judgment on Jesus who had the authority to do, to do so, he doesn't. He affirms, he affirms the teachings, understanding even the implications that that would have held was this to go to um, court or something like that. They could use his testimony because of the position that, that he held. But instead of passing judgment on Jesus' teaching, he, he affirms those teachings. And these offerings that he refers to are offerings that would have been whole burnt offerings. These aren't the type of sacrifices that, that would have been eaten, but these were dedicated solely to worship, solely to, solely to honoring God. So that, that tells us that even the most sacred duties that, that we do, that they were doing, mean absolutely nothing if they're not born out of a loving relationship with God, which comes only through Jesus Christ, the one who is now standing right in front of them. So he gives this affirmation and he looks at Jesus and he says, you're, you're right, teacher. So he calls him teacher or rabbi in that day, but he still doesn't give him the title of Lord. And so here we're coming into to our main point in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus brings the conversation who had been, that had been shifted over to the law, to the Torah. They begin to dis- discuss different things. And he brings it, he brings it back to his authority. So, so the one who could have passed judgment doesn't. He affirms. And then Jesus ironically shows his authority and passes judgment on him in the realm of, of eternal life in the realm of being in the kingdom of God. So he tells him, you're not far. He brings that conversation back to his law and his authority and his role in the fulfillment of God's overall plan of redemption. But look, look what he's saying here. There, there's two things I want to point out from this that I want you to see. One is that his response that he's given, this isn't Jesus just slamming the door on the conversation or slamming the door after winning an argument on the kingdom of God here saying, ha, you thought you knew it all, but you don't. I do. I have the authority. We'll see you later. He does it. Instead of shutting the door here, he opens the door to the gospel. And you know, we have a tendency to see the characters that are here in Scripture and even the people that, that are in front of us that, that challenge us, that ask us questions. We, we have the tendency to see these characters or these people like they're the, like they're the bad guys. Like we're against them, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus still sees these people as lost sinners who are working hard, toiling, laboring for something that that they can't earn. And here's what he's trying to open their eyes to, 
then and even now what he's trying to open our eyes to is that unless one is born again, there is no entry into the kingdom of God. So instead of taking the point where he could have just proved his authority and left it at done, he goes farther and he extends to him. He opens the door to the gospel, which is the example that we need to follow. But even more than that, listen to what he's, what he's saying here. He says, you're not far. Even with all this guy's doctrinal wisdom, his agreement, his affirmation with what Jesus has been teaching, he still finds himself lacking one thing, and it's the most important thing. It is the only thing. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. He recognized him as teacher, but he did not recognize him as Lord. Now, we don't know if he figures that out. We don't know if he gets it. We don't, we don't get to see that part of the response. But what Jesus is, is trying... It's trying to make known here is that you can know it all. You can, you can seemingly do it all. But without faith in me, it's all vain. I'm right here. I'm in front of you. I'm giving you what you need to know so you can stop the work, stop the religious charade, and actually come to me. We go over to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. This is what we hear Jesus say in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, which is Jesus, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. That's interesting because that's the same language he used when he went into the temple. And he said, you have made my father's house a house of den and robbers. You've turned it into a house of people trying to follow your ways the wrong way. They're trying to not enter the door to the kingdom, but they're trying to come in the wrong way. And he says, the one who comes in another way than by the door, that man is a thief and a robber. What I want you to know is that the kingdom of God has, has one door. It has one door. There's one God. There's one heaven and one door. Look at, look at what John 10.9 says. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's other paths that, that, are, that are offered that are everywhere, that, that run all over the place. But there's only one path that leads to the kingdom of God. And there are still people everywhere all around us who are trying to find entries into heaven that just they're not there and here jesus is then and here he is now and he says i am i am the door the door is right in front of you and whoever comes to me i will save them you don't have to to put on the fancy robes and stand in the streets and exalt yourselves you don't have to go through the trouble of offering all these sacrifices. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your obedience. That's what He wants. So Jesus is offering them, man, the best thing He could possibly give them. He's offering them Himself, letting them know that, that He is the door. That all these other things aren't going to get Him anywhere. The best that they could do is get Him close. So for today, we can, we can apply that in a few different ways. We can understand that we, we can join churches, we can attend every Sunday, chase whatever religion that you might want, but religion will not get you anywhere. Church membership will not get you anywhere. 
one of those things that, that's hard to think about that is true is there's going to be church members and religious people that are going to bust the gates of hell wide open when they die. It's a terrifying thought. But you can give your tithes. Every Sunday you can help every needy person that you, that you come across and still miss the kingdom of God. You can devote your life to, to feeding homeless. What I'm saying is you can devote your life to doing good works things that are good, things that we should do. But your entry to heaven isn't about good works. It's about a perfect righteousness that we just don't have apart from Christ. That's, that's what it's about. It's not about doing good. It's about faith in Christ. So we can know everything the Bible says, and we can believe it's true, and we can still miss the kingdom of God. And in James chapter 4, it says, Even the demons believe. And they shudder. And it angers me, but I know that Satan is a better theologian than I'll ever be. He knows more about the Bible. He knows more about scriptures than I probably ever will. But this is our, our takeaway from this entire dialogue and what the main thrust of what Jesus is, is pointing to here is that knowledge and understanding, agreement, approval, even an awareness of, of Jesus as being the door, as being the means of salvation, and even in a, a desire to be saved, all of those things can, can be going on and you can still hear, you're close. You're close. And close is as far as any of us can come until you make that personal decision to trust in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. And that's that decision, that faith, that trust in Him to remove that from yourself, place it in Him to earn your salvation, that's going to be the decision that determines whether you're coming in to the kingdom of God or you're actually coming close to the kingdom of God like the scribe was here today. And Jesus stood there then and He says now through His Word that whoever comes to Me, I will in no wise cast out. Friends, I I urge you and plead with you today come to Jesus. Religion can, can only bring you so close to the kingdom of God. But it takes a relationship with Jesus Christ to actually bring you into the kingdom of God. So the question that, that I would have you ask yourself today is one that's 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 simple. Are you close to the kingdom of God? Or are you in the kingdom of God? Consider that as we, as we close in prayer and as our invitation plays. Heavenly Father, it's, um, it's a blessing in so many ways to know that our salvation, our righteousness, Our standing with you doesn't depend on us. God, if it did, no one would make it. The Lord, you've sent your Son and you've placed that on Him, that He could be our righteousness, that He would gain our entry, that His perfect life, everything that He's done would be applied to our account. So the ways that that we fall short the ways that we don't love you, the ways that we don't love our neighbor, all of that is covered in Christ and His 
righteousness, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that you have saved us. And God, I pray that you would just open our hearts to that today. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that has any doubts at all, God, that you would take care of those doubts today, that you would just grant faith, that you would grant repentance, Lord, and bring in more into your kingdom. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.